Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Zoe. How's it going? Not very good. <gasps> Why is that? What's happened? Oh, uh, well, this morning I was replying to a complaint that has been made against me. Someone complained to the Australian Press Council about a column I wrote earlier this year about gender affirmation healthcare being paused or um, halted in Finland. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about uh, an interview that was published with a professor in youth psychiatry. Uh, the interview was published by Finland's largest newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I quoted this professor at length and for writing this article, which was called Acceptance, Not Surgery, Solution to Teen mm-hmm. Trans Anxiety. Mm-hmm. Someone complained to the Australian Press Council and they've forwarded, I've had to respond to the complaint. And um, it's not a big deal, but just reading the actual complaint has highly um, agitated me. Yes. Because it is so illogical. And so um, the fact that these complaints. So I know that every single journalist in Australia who is writing about anything to do with trans issues gets a complaint made against them. This is not the first time I've had a complaint made against me. Every journalist who writes anything at all, unless it is 100% supportive of gender affirmation, which is changing your sex through hormones and surgery, unless it is 100% supportive of that pathway, you will have a complaint made against you. And it's enraging because this campaign against journalism is disfiguring the profession of journalism. It means that uh, good stories, uh, crucial stories are not being reported. We aren't we don't have the facts. We don't know what's going on in gender clinics in Australia because any journalist who tries to investigate what's happening gets a complaint made against them. And it's enraging because all over the world there is a growing awareness that the science on this topic is by no means settled. There is a live and open debate Countries like I reported, countries like Finland, countries like Sweden, countries like the UK have paused the prescription of puberty blockers for children with the exception of them being used in clinical trials which have very strict ethical parameters. And the fact that here in Australia we cannot even report on what's happening overseas is... Uh, yeah, like it, it, it has angered me. It's um, it's a scandal, basically. So the Australian Press Council, um, I think, has been corrupted by an activist group, um, and I believe that activist group is called GLAD. Yeah, which is an American organisation. I'm pretty sure. Because mm-hmm. in Australia, we have our own lobby groups, trans lobby groups, the biggest, almost a known one being ACON, usually, yep. um, who write media guidelines for media organisations, um, for example, the ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, but it appears that GLAD, who's written an advisory guideline for the Australian Press Council, of which the Australian is a is member. A yeah. And publications don't have to be members they choose. Yeah, yeah. So 
I mean, it, journalism is a profession and like other professions, it's self-governing. So if you're a doctor, you become a member of, you know, the Royal uh, Association of mm-hmm. General Practitioners or whatever. And so there are self-governing bodies which um, try to police the profession. And it's reasonable for a profession to become a member of a council that has uh, a broad set of criteria for media standards and fairness. It's reasonable and, uh, you know, the Australian are a member of the Press Council, Fairfax Papers, lots of other little papers are members and they give the Press Council money. And it's really a matter of prestige. It's a matter of saying, look, we hold ourselves to high standards. We support an independent council which um, is tasked with answering uh, or responding to complaints made against media organisations and we will police ourselves. Like if we have a complaint made against us or upheld against us, we will police ourselves and improve our standards. So far, so good. The problem is that, as we know, the transgender lobby is populated by some extremely aggressive activists Mm -hmm who do not adhere to the normal standards of logic, evidence Mm -hmm. and rationality that other people do or other professionals do. Mm -hmm. And everything, like reading through this complaint, Mm -hmm. it doesn't make any internal logical consistency. Mm -hmm. Everything is just an emotional argument. Mm. Well, they keep coming back to their, their argument for every... Um, every comment they take issue with is the issue concerns whether in publishing the comment, the publication has taken reasonable steps to be accurate and not misleading Mm. and to ensure that expressions of opinion are not based on significantly inaccurate factual material or omission of key facts. So they keep, which sounds very like legalese, reminds me of law school, but You know, every day we see in the media um, reporting on these issues, which the reporting is inaccurate and misleading. And it's okay if it's inaccurate or misleading when it's in support of complete medicalization of children with gender dysphoria. But any criticism of that gets gets flagged. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I I certainly agree that reporting journalism should be fair and accurate. Mm. I 100% mm-hmm. agree with that assertion. The issue is that these activists present gender-affirming health care as being settled mm-hmm. science mm. and mm. the gold standard in health care, even though medical practitioners mm. and researchers do not agree. Mm-hmm. So they are the ones spreading disinformation mm-hmm. and they're presenting gender-affirming health care as unquestionable, mm. as though it's something akin to chemotherapy mm. for cancer mm-hmm. or uh, surgery for mm. a brain tumour. Mm. It is not settled mm-hmm. science. Puberty blockers are used off-label. There's mm-hmm. been no clinical trials mm-hmm. showing that they're safe for children mm-hmm in the treatment of gender dysphoria. There is no clinical trial that shows that this treatment mm-hmm. is safe. They mm-hmm. don't exist. The science can't be settled. It, it, it infuriates me. <laughs> and, and, and then and for, for people like me to point out that, hang on a minute, the science is not actually mm-hmm. settled, there's debate. For, for me, mm-hmm. for us to be accused of uh, being 
uh, you know, not following the mm-hmm. facts, it's this it's it's Orwellian. Oh <laughs> my god. And yeah, like if you look through the advisory guidelines which are which are public, you know, the language they want you to use is you can't you can't really be unbiased when you use this language. I mean, it's talking about how we should use, you know, the words um, pansexual and that. <laughs> what's the other one? Two spirit and like, you know, these aren't. These are not scientific no, terms. They're, they're just pulled out of someone's imagination. Hmm. They're not. It's not. There's no fact of being pansexual. No. But they did. Co- whoever made the complaint complained mm. that I cited a study published in 2011 in Sweden which found that people who had gone through sex reassignment, these are adults, Mm -hmm. not children, had... um, So I'll just quote straight from the study. Mm -hmm. Persons with transsexualism after sex reassignment have considerably higher risks for mortality, suicidal behaviour and psychiatric morbidity than the general population. Our findings suggest that sex reassignment, although alleviating gender dysphoria, may not suffice as treatment for transsexualism and should inspire improved psychiatric and somatic care after sex reassignment. It also found there were more suicides in people who had undergone sex reassignment. It also found that there was a higher risk of criminal convictions Mm. compared to a control group. Uh, And so just for citing this study... Mm -hmm which is published in peer-reviewed academic literature, the, the query was this is not balanced and should uh, cite other studies. Yeah, science that we prefer. <laughs> study that, yeah. Oh, and um, another study that was carried out in Finland mm-hmm. in 2019 found that among 52 adolescents who, was, who started gender reassignment treatment, only those who are well-functioning before treatment continue to do well after treatment. Those adolescents who are already suffering from psychiatric disorders continue to do poorly mm-hmm. after gender reassignment. The researchers concluded that medical gender reassignment was not enough to improve functioning and relieve psychiatric comorbidities. So the complaint said that, <laughs> well, gender... Um, Affirming healthcare is not supposed to treat comorbidities. It's supposed to just treat gender dysphoria. But then the very next point of the complaint is that gender dysphoric children or teenagers might have read my article and might feel suicidal about it, so it needed to have a a reference to Mm. a suicide hotline. Mm. I mean, give me a break. Mm. I love your response. This is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a break. Teenagers are not reading The Australian. One, it's paywalled um, quite considerably. and It's for, it's for wealthy boomers. It's for wealthy <laughs> white men in Australia, which is fine. We love wealthy white men. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's not like trans teens are reading The Australian. Um, so they've said you should have – or the I guess The Australian um, should have made reference to a suicide hotline um, – provided those services there but and but that you the, concluded the, the point the point mm. is that i cited a study saying that kids who were not well functioning before they got gender mm. reassignment were not well functioning after mm. and so obviously you have to take into account comorbidities i mean we get told every single day that if kids are not affirmed in their real gender mm. they're going to commit suicide mm. 
So that's the argument. It's a, it's a type of emotional blackmail. You yeah. have to let me transition, mm-hmm. otherwise I'm going to kill mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. The point is that if a child is so distressed that they are suicidal, there might be other issues going on mm-hmm. rather than just gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And those other issues have to be investigated. Mm-hmm. There could be issues of trauma. There could be issues of uh, you know family mm-hmm. disruption. There could be eating disorders. And as we know, there are lots of teenage girls who are on the autism spectrum mm-hmm. who are going down this pathway of transitioning. Now... Obviously, these comorbidities have to be investigated. And it could be that these comorbidities are related to suicidality, not gender dysphoria. So advocates of gender-affirming treatment can't beat everyone over the head with this emotional blackmail saying, if you do not let these kids transition, they're going to kill themselves, Mm -hmm. when perhaps... There are other issues such as depression, such as eating disorders, such as trauma. You have to be Mm -hmm. able to separate Mm -hmm. them out. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, and if you don't want people to to start investigating comorbidities, then you have Mm -hmm. to stop using comorbidities and suicidality Mm -hmm. as uh, an emotional tool. Yeah. Well, it's the one argument they always use. It's like scraping the barrel, really. The bottom um, of the barrel. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's like I said, there's no recourse to logic or rationality or internally consistent arguments. It's just emotion mm-hmm. and the most mm-hmm. extreme mm-hmm. forms of emotional yeah. blackmail yeah. there are. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's been in a relationship with someone with a personality disorder recognizes this type of argumentation. Mm-hmm. If you're in a relationship with someone with borderline personality disorder, if you're having an argument, they will turn around and tell you, mm. I'm going to kill myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not it's the it's the most extreme argument you can mm-hmm. come up with and it's a sign that someone is quite profoundly disturbed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very manipulative mm-hmm. and I'm not even sure if it's the kids themselves who are threatening it as much as the parents of these kids or the activists, the adult, Mm. you know, members of this community who are speaking on behalf of the children. But are they really speaking on behalf of the children or are they trying, are they using children as a pawn to get what they want, which is power over journalists Mm. like yourself or... Mm. Well, it's become a meme. It's mm. become a meme and, and, and I wouldn't be surprised. Like I'm sure there's lots of kids and there's lots of teenagers who are mm-hmm. distressed and who are going through the normal angst and quite extreme angst that is associated with growing up and teenagehood. Like I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there's a, a certain proportion of kids who are quite stressed, mm-hmm. but it has become a meme and I think that it's being promoted as a tool or as an instrument for people to get what they want. Mm. So if you go to see a doctor, I mean, activists will tell kids if you want to go on, if you want to transition and get hormones, whether it's testosterone or whatever, you go to the doctor and you tell them you're suicidal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's like they're teaching kids how to manipulate mm. doctors, essentially. Yeah. Um, and doctors have to be very very wary and very cautious. And I don't blame doctors for wanting to have nothing to do with it, mm. to be honest. I read reports of some child psychiatrists just closing up shop 
Really? Just saying, I have, I do not want to have anything to do with this issue. Mm. Um, and I don't blame them, to be mm. honest. Or people who go in the opposite way and make a career out of it and say they're, you know, gender therapists or, tre- you know, specialising in children. Or, oh, yeah, the, wor- the, worst, the worst example would be plastic surgeons mm. who see an opportunity mm. to, make, to make a buck. Make bank. Creepy. Very creepy. Okay. We also wanted to talk about on a different topic, but yeah. um, you're reading a really interesting book at the moment. You're yeah. telling me about it. Yeah. What's it called again? The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Mm. Uh, What's it about? Uh, it's a book about economic history. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's about how, I mean, the book is about America, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of parallels with Australia. And uh, it's simply about the differences in the economy in in three periods, 1870 to 1920, and then 1920 to 1970, and then 1970 to now. And so the period of expansive economic growth happened between 1920 and 1970. And there was a lot of growth between 1870 and 1920, not as as much. And then since 1970, growth has stagnated. Mm. And this economist is looking at the reasons why and Mm -hmm. there's complex reasons but it's a fascinating book because it's very well written and I've just been reading about what life was like Mm. back in 1870 in America but it would also have applied to Australia and most people like something like 46% of people lived on farms so my ancestors when they came to Australia uh, lived on farms up in Mm -hmm. Queensland um There was no running water, no electricity. The women had to haul water into Mm -hmm. the house, like buckets of water. Mm -hmm. They'd they'd have to haul in buckets of water. That's the real CrossFit. Yeah, yeah. Mm. (laughs) Um, The author estimates that women had to haul in something like uh, 32 tonnes of water a year because they had to wash everyone's clothes. By hand. By hand, they had to heat the water over the fire. No internal heating. Mm. There's no heater. There's no water. You can't have a bath whenever you feel like it. You have to haul in water into the house and heat it up over the Mm. fire if you want a bath. So people had a bath like once a month if they were lucky. And you think about what life was like. And then you think, you know, they had 10 kids, 15 kids Mm -hmm. to a family. Mm. Uh, Part of that was hedging their bets for the future, right? Well, a lot of their kids died. Yeah. Yeah. So for a very long time, about 40% of kids who were born didn't make it Mm. to their first birthday, which is absolutely tragic. Mm. And, you know, when we think about, like, whenever I have go through periods of stress and hardship, I think like I do, think about Mm. my female ancestors Mm. and what they would have gone through. And I think, you know, Mm. uh, you're a little princess, Claire, get on with it. (laughs) Because it was nothing like what our ancestors had to deal with. And then the men men had to do all of the hard labour on the farm, Mm -hmm. dealing with the animals, preventing Mm -hmm. the animals from dying during Mm -hmm. winter. Mm. Um, Yeah, I was thinking about it when I went to the dentist. I just got a, a clean, but my teeth have become more sensitive with time and I thought, Come on, Zoe. Like, if you can't handle your teeth being scraped, like, think about your ancestors who literally had teeth removed, like, with without anesthesia, <laughs> or like who gave birth, yeah, out on a farm with, you know, no yep. epidural, nothing. Just, yeah, you know, they went yep. through it. So that's right. So women gave birth in the home. Mm-hmm. 
Are there other women folk who'd come into the house and help the mother when she was giving birth? Women didn't die in childbirth that often. Mm. It was only like a couple of hundred per thousand. I mean, they they died much more frequently than than they do now. Mm. But it's not like one in two women Mm. died or anything like that. Um, But the babies died all the time and they died from infectious disease I'm sure, like, mm. if a baby couldn't latch mm. on to his mm-hmm. mother's breasts mm-hmm. to feed, he would just starve and yeah. die. Yeah. Um, things like diarrhea. Mm. Accidents, mean, probably far more accidents. Like, if you've got 12 kids on a farm. Yeah, wow. and it's, a, it's you know, I, I, I tell my son, like, mm-hmm. to really understand how lucky and privileged mm-hmm. you are to live at this t- in this mm-hmm. time, you have to read history. Mm-hmm. I think reading history is one of the... Best things that you can do just like for your, for not just your own wisdom, but for your mental health, mm-hmm. because it, reading about how hard conditions were in the past promotes gratitude to, for what we have mm-hmm. today. Mm. Um, and there's just little things that we take for granted, like mm-hmm. just going to the shops and there being a selection of fruit and mm-hmm. veg. They didn't have mm-hmm. that. Our ancestors didn't have mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a variety of fruit and veg, veg mm-hmm. to eat. So they ended up with scurvy and rickets mm. and constipation. Mm. And why do you think it's such a uncomfortable idea for, for many people, both on the left and right, to entertain the fact that things were worse before and things are better now? It's like people always want to romanticise yeah. the past. It's a huge thing on the left mm. to romanticise the past because, and particularly to romanticise pre-modern cultures, mm-hmm. so hunter-gatherer mm. cultures, mm-hmm. because... Tribal life. It, yeah, it goes mm. back to uh, the philosophies of Rousseau, mm. who argued that, you know, man mm. was this pristine mm. creature and then civilization corrupted him. Mm-hmm. And then on the left, because the left is sceptical of markets, mm-hmm. they don't like the idea that capitalism has been a miracle uh and it, the reality is that free markets have given us a variety of fruit and veg veg to mm-hmm. eat at the shops mm-hmm. lots of cheap clothing mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the free markets have given mm-hmm. us indoor heating and air conditioning yeah. i mean all of the, the washing things- machines so that women don't have to spend so much time manually doing stuff yeah exactly really improve the lives of women yeah Mm. that's right Mm. and um you know a lot of people (laughs) a lot of people assume that women's liberation happened was an entirely political movement Mm -hmm. but if it weren't for the technology which was for the most part invented by Mm -hmm. men (laughs) if it weren't for the technology that came out of capitalist patriarchy we'd still be there slaving away scrubbing clothes yeah. day in and day out so yeah i mean it, so there's an inherent skepticism towards capitalism and markets so that leads people on the left to, to to have this fantasy idea that life out in the mm-hmm. jungle without you know without civilization is somehow mm-hmm. this like it's just wonderful yeah. then if you read uh, if you, the best book on what life is like in hunter-gatherer societies is um, Noble Savages okay. by Napoleon Chagnon. And one of the things that stood out to me, apart from the violence towards women, but one of the things that stood out to me was like they have no toilets. Wow. They So there's a little tribe in the middle of the Amazon. Mm. There's no toilets. They just mm. go mm. out a few metres away from where the tribe lives mm. to... Um, 
you know. Yeah. Uh, Get it done. Yeah. And so the whole place stinks. Mm. Like if you like living in, if you, can, if you imagine going somewhere mm. in a city where there's no toilets and people mm. are just like mm. defecating mm. on the like street. Byron Bay, Splendor in the cross And you, people are just defecating on the street and you have to like just sit next to someone's feast. Like, Ugh. yeah, you know. Good luck to Horrible. you. Yeah, and um, then the disease is that that spreads. Yeah, but, oh. you know, the, the it's mm. a fantasy. Yeah. Life without flushing toilets, without running water, mm. without electricity is shit house. Yeah. <laughs> and then recently on, on the right, there's been this resurgence of, like, return to the land, you know, make America great again, like, bring back the golden era of, like, yeah, Australia as well. There's a lot of nostalgia. Yes. Yeah. There's, mm. a, there's a movement on the right. Uh, towards something called post-liberalism, which I think is it's kind of an incoherent movement. But part of what they criticise in modern society is that we don't all follow the same religion yes. and we don't have shared values. And I think, sure, you can make some you can make a criticism of modern society that we're too individualistic mm-hmm. and we. You know, we don't have shared values and there there are some social maladies because of that. But I think in general they're too negative and too pessimistic with regard to what we actually have. It's like the glass half empty mm. kind of outlook. I think anyone who doesn't look at what we actually have and the low rates of babies dying or children dying in childhood and the fact that we do have so much leisure time and my male relatives do not have to be subsistence farmers. Yeah. They can sh- they can go to university, get educated. I mean, mm-hmm. we have so much more freedom mm-hmm. to do what we want mm-hmm. to do and pursue mm-hmm. the paths that we yeah. want to pursue. And that includes the freedom to being religious. Mm-hmm. Like, we do have the freedom. Mm-hmm. If you want to be Christian, go and be mm-hmm. Christian. Mm-hmm. There's a church probably mm-hmm. on your street. Mm-hmm. Go down there mm-hmm. and start worship. Like, mm-hmm. you can live a traditional lifestyle mm. if you want mm-hmm. we have that freedom you just the the, the problem is is that you can't impose your values on other people mm. and that's because we live in a free society mm. it reminds me too that i've i've just done my ancestry.com mm. and uh it's it's crazy someone on on the irish english side because on my dad's side i'm irish english on mum's side it's greek someone has tracked my whole family tree back to like the 1400s probably similar to Mm. i think you have it mine doesn't go back that far right yeah yeah and there are even photos people have have uploaded photos of these my ancestors and yeah i was just thinking about how they came out from ireland and scotland and like the lives they would have lived here and not too many generations ago. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. our grandparents' generation, you know, really struggled during the Depression. And yeah. I think my granddad ate a rat, I heard, <laughs> once, like lived under a bridge and ate a rat. He was from a big Methodist family. Yeah. What about for your children and for their children? Do you think they're going to keep enjoying this prosperity? Yeah, I'm, there's a lot of there's a lot of pessimism around today. And I am at times pessimistic as well. It's not clear what the economy is going to look like in Mm. 30 years from now or 20 years from now. And there are certainly big challenges because people are not having babies. We've got this issue where there's going to be a lot of old people Mm -hmm. and for the government to pay for their healthcare and aged care, they're going to have to tax the workers 
more. So that's people like you and me and then our kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want my children to grow up, grow up in an economy where half of their half of their income from their labor is taxed yeah. to pay for a bunch of old people mm. in uh, aged care homes. But unfortunately, that looks like that will be the reality. Mm. I think all rich nations have this the same problem mm-hmm. and no country really knows what to do mm. about it except for getting more migrants mm-hmm. in, immigrants in, and th- but then that creates its own dramas such mm-hmm. as um, pressure on the housing mm-hmm. system. Mm. Culture. So mm. I think we do have serious challenges. However, I am optimistic that I'm not I'm a techno optimist and mm-hmm. I do think that uh, artificial intelligence is going to make us more productive mm-hmm. and that it's going to free a lot of us up particularly us people who are knowledge workers mm-hmm. to I think it like already yeah. artificial intelligence has helped mm-hmm. us in our work mm-hmm. it's just made us quicker mm-hmm. right and I don't have to if I have a question uh, to do with marketing I don't have to go and buy a book mm-hmm. and read it, an entire book about mm-hmm. it I can ask chat GBT yeah. and it will give me um, cliff notes on a particular marketing mm-hmm. question chat GPT has helped me edit my own columns mm-hmm. um, it's an incredible tool and I think it's it's already made me more efficient and productive and if then if you apply that across the aggregate to the many millions of people all over the world who work in creative or knowledge production jobs I think it's going to make a difference mm. and I like every time a new technology comes around, people get scared. Mm-hmm. But I want it. I'm excited because I think it's going to make us work better and give us more free time to do the things yeah. that we really want to do, such as like go to Pilates <laughs> or go to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to say one more thing, sure. which is that we have a social. We have a social in exactly one month in Melbourne. Great. We've, I think we've got only about 10 tickets left. Great. Um, yeah. Really looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, really Claire, looking forward to meeting everyone in Melbourne. Yes, can't wait. Claire will be there. Iona will be there. You will I'll be, be there. there. Holly and Lawford Smith, a few other um, figures. Notable people. Yeah. You might not want to be named, but yeah, um, it's going to be great. And then tickets have just gone on sale for our London social on the 3rd of November. Extremely exciting. Yeah, that's going to be a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, check out our website. Yeah, and I hope to see yeah. all of you guys there, yeah. everyone who's listening, London and Melbourne. Yeah, see you there. Thanks, Zoe. Okay. Bye, Claire. Bye.